Welcome to the new episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Show is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. And we are now in our fourth season, Haunted New Orleans. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we suggest you start listening to the Haunted New Orleans season with episode 53, which is where this season begins and where we set the stage for the many dark tales ahead. In each episode of the season, we'll be revealing the history, mystery, spirit, scandals, and sins of New Orleans, a city we believe is the most haunted in America. So raise the flag, dust off your old uniform, and make sure your powder's dry as we dive into the next episode of Haunted New Orleans. The Civil War era was a very strange time in New Orleans history. It was a city very deep in the South and far beyond the Confederate lines, and yet it spent the vast majority of the war under Union control. It was a messy time, not just for New Orleans, but for the entire country. On November 6th, 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected as president of the United States. He was an unpopular choice in the South, to put it mildly, and his election led directly to the destruction of the Union. Five months after the election, the United States was at war with itself. The war that followed was the culmination of more than 30 years of debate and bloodshed over slavery and the expansion of slavery into the new territories of the West. The first state to secede from the Union was South Carolina, and as it turned out, this was not the first time that the people of South Carolina had discussed leaving the United States. During a debate over tariffs in the 1830s, the state seriously considered secession. Fortunately, politician John C. Calhoun talked some sense into the hotheads in the state capitol, and they remained in the Union. But there was no talking them out of leaving after Lincoln got into office. On December 20th, 1860, there was a very short debate about the pros and cons of secession, and representatives voted 169 to zero to leave the Union. After that, more states followed, including Louisiana, which was the sixth state, on January 26th of 1861. A convention was held on that day in Baton Rouge, and the delegates voted 113 to 17 to dissolve the connection between Louisiana and the United States. The American flag in the statehouse chamber was lowered and replaced with a flag bearing the state seal of a pelican feeding its young. Louisiana kept its independence until March 21st when it transferred its loyalty to the Confederate States of America. Well, as it turned out, this was not a hugely popular decision in New Orleans. By 1861, New Orleans had the largest cotton market in the world and was by far the wealthiest city in America. It had been an American city for just over 50 years when the Civil War began. Seceding from the Union was very disheartening to the merchants of the city who depended on the Northern and European markets for their wealth. They knew they'd be unable to do business with their best customers since they were at war with one and would undoubtedly be prevented from transporting goods to the other. But caught in the middle of it all were New Orleans free people of color. They were now at war with a union that proposed not only the abolition of slavery, but granting the right to vote and the right to public education for all people, no matter what color they were. The city was in a volatile state of mixed emotions by April of 1861 when the first shots were fired at Fort Sumter. But ironically, those shots were fired by a regiment of Louisiana men, led by New Orleans' native son, General Pierre Gustave Beauregard. 
Those cannons were fired in South Carolina, but New Orleans did not have to wait long to see war. The Union military knew how important the city was and almost immediately began a blockade of the Mississippi River, cutting off the city's supply of flour, paper, and coffee. Plans were soon drawn up to capture the city. Union command knew that the fall of New Orleans would be a catastrophe for the Confederacy and that it would enable them to divide the North by controlling the mouth of the Mississippi River. Southern commanders were unprepared for the attack. They planned for the Union to attack down the river, not from the Gulf of Mexico. In early 1862, the Confederates concentrated their forces in northern Mississippi and western Tennessee, thinking they would hold back a Yankee invasion. New Orleans was nearly undefended from the south. On April 24, 1862, a fleet of 24 ships under command of David G. Farragut was ordered to seize New Orleans. Farragut later became known for his naval victory at Mobile Bay in 1864, during which he commanded his fleet to ignore the Confederate defenses in the harbor, famously proclaiming, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. But what he did at New Orleans was just as impressive. To reach the city, Farragut's ships had to sail upriver past Fort Jackson and Fort St. Philip, and it was Commander David Dixon Porter, Farragut's younger foster brother, who came up with the reckless plan. They would send a collection of small sailing vessels, each bearing a huge mortar, into the harbor and anchor them below the forts so that they could pound the defenses in advance of the fleet. The ships were sent, but after six days of battering, the forts remained standing. Farragut then decided on an even more daring scheme. Under the cover of night, they would run past the forts, smash the barricades, and steam into New Orleans. At two o'clock in the morning, Farragut's warships started past the forts. Confederate guns opened fire, and the lead ship was hit 42 times. It caught fire, but the men aboard her managed to drown the flames and keep going. It was a test of sheer will, but the four flagships some made it past the forts. As the Union fleet approached New Orleans, a makeshift Confederate squadron of eight ships sailed out to meet them. Farragut sank all but two and sailed on to New Orleans. The Confederate general tasked with protecting the city, Mansfield Lovell, had only a small force of men. There was nothing he could do against the warships and nearly 15,000 federal troops. He told the city's mayor, John Monroe, that Farragut would bombard the city and inflict severe damage and casualties. It was better to run and live to fight another day and to protect the city from destruction. It's hard to know what the city might look like today if General Lovell had not withdrawn to protect it. The Yankee ships arrived on April 25th. Four days later, the two forts that protected the river surrendered, and New Orleans surrendered without a shot being fired. The Confederate flags over the city were lowered and replaced by the Stars and Stripes. The city was thrown into a panic by the arrival of Union forces. Hungry citizens watched in despair as warehouses of food, cotton, and lumber were burned to keep them out of the hands of the enemy. Mobs of looters ran through the streets, stealing anything that could be bartered for food with the conquering Northern Army. But starvation would not be felt under the Union occupation. To some, what they had to endure was considered to be worse. After the surrender, President Lincoln named Benjamin F. Butler of Massachusetts to be the military governor of occupied New Orleans. He took over New Orleans on May 1, 1862 and was the ruler of the city until December 16th when he was recalled by the War Department to Washington. In those seven months, he succeeded in making himself the most hated man in the history of New Orleans, where he was referred to often as Butler the Beast. If even half the stories told about him are true, then he was definitely one of the city's greatest scoundrels. And when it comes to New Orleans, that's saying a lot. 
Butler was an unscrupulous politician who used his military rank to not only make himself rich, but helped out family and friends as well. His brother, A.J. Butler, made $2 million in New Orleans during the war by various means, including trading with the enemy and smuggling in banned goods. Butler also closed down all the gambling houses in the city and then only allowed them to reopen if they paid a license fee to his brother, with the general, of course, as a full partner. He used the occupation to make a fortune for himself. He took whatever he wanted, always under the guise of military confiscation, of course. His greed earned him the nickname of Spoons Butler after an incident in which Butler seized a 38-piece set of silverware from a New Orleans woman attempting to cross Union lines. Although the woman's past permitted her to carry nothing but clothing on her person, making the carrying of the silverware illegal, a single set of silverware would have normally been considered protected personal property, but not to Butler. His insistence on prosecuting the woman as a smuggler and seizing the silver as wartime contraband earned him the dislike of the people of New Orleans who knew it was nothing more than the petty looting of the city's household valuables. Butler saw no need to be gentle in his position of power in New Orleans and his methods earned him both admiration and scorn depending on the part of the country in which he was being talked about. He hanged a man named W.B. Mumford who was suspected of desecrating an American flag. He closed his successionist newspaper and confiscated the property of anyone who would not swear allegiance to the Union. He also harassed foreign ambassadors and officials in New Orleans. He ordered the seizure of $800,000 that had been deposited in the office of the Dutch ambassador, imprisoned the French champagne magnate Charles Heisedeck, and took particular aim at George Koppel of Great Britain, whom he suspended for refusal to cooperate with the Union. When he realized how much of Koppel's wealth he could confiscate, he charged him with giving aid to the Confederate cause. U.S. Secretary of State William Seward investigated the complaints of foreign consuls against certain Butler policies. Even when told by President Lincoln to restore a sugar shipment claimed by Europeans, Butler ignored the order. But these were not the greatest of Butler's crimes, at least in the eyes of the entire South. That crime was his infamous Order Number no. 28, also known as the Women Order. From the day that he'd arrived in the city, Butler had been enraged by the attitude of New Orleans ladies who blatantly insulted Butler's men in the streets, calling them names and yelling at them. They made a point of wearing Confederate colors on their hats and dresses, played or sang Southern songs when troops were nearby, and making the, their dislike of Union troops obvious by leaving a streetcar, a cafe, or a shop whenever a federal officer entered. When a woman in the French Quarter opened her window and emptied the contents of a chamber pot over a Union officer's head, Butler issued Order Number 28. It stated that any woman who insulted a member of the United States Army would be treated from that point on as a prostitute in the midst of plying her trade. This meant that upon complaint of any member of the Union military forces, a woman in New Orleans could be arrested, held overnight in jail, brought before a magistrate, and fined five dollars for being a prostitute. Well, needless to say, the men and women of the South were outraged and Butler was called everything from unchivalrous to his nickname of the beast. Confederate President Jefferson Davis proclaimed Butler an outlaw and put a price on his head. When Mayor John Moore protested the order, he was removed from office. 
Even many Northern newspapers denounced the order as outrageous and insulting. Butler refused to rescind the order, though, and even though no woman was ever arrested, the harassment of his men eventually stopped. From that point on, any protest of Order Number 28 was done silently. Well, sort of. It seems that the order was resented by the women of New Orleans' red light districts even more than it was by those at whom it was directed. A large number of portraits of General Butler had been distributed soon after he entered the city, and most of them eventually found their way into the brothels of the city. A few days after the issuance of Order Number 28, Butler learned how his portraits were being put to use. The prostitutes had pasted his face to the bottom of their porcelain chamber pots. A detachment of soldiers raided the red light district, confiscated the chamber pots, and destroyed them. Legend has it that the general broke many of them himself. Butler also tore apart two other old New Orleans institutions, a historical landmark, and the practice of slavery. A statue of Andrew Jackson had been standing in the city's Jackson Square for six years when the Union troops arrived, honoring the fact that the general had saved the city from the British in 1815. Butler ordered these words carved into the pedestal, calculated to enrage the citizens of New Orleans. It read, The Union must and shall be preserved. The carving remains on the base of the statue today as a reminder of this dark time in the city's history. Butler also quickly turned the friction between masters and slaves to the Union's advantage. He declared the plantation owners to be disloyal to the Union, and he confiscated their property. In other words, he freed their slaves. The freed slaves began arriving in New Orleans in huge numbers. Many of them were employed as cooks, nurses, washwomen, and laborers, while others were left to try and figure out what to do with their new freedom on their own. With the city being overrun, he ordered that all unemployed people, black or white, be removed from New Orleans. So in other words, he freed them, brought them to the city, and then kicked them out. While Butler's time in New Orleans was popular in some parts of the North, where it was seen as a firm stand against rebellious secessionists, some of his actions, notably those against foreign officials, which the United States wanted on their side, concerned President Lincoln. He recalled Butler to Washington, where Butler, happy about the support he received from radical Republicans, changed political parties. He also vowed revenge against William Seward, who he believed was responsible for his recall from New Orleans. Well, he never got that revenge. He later became a lawyer and he died from a lung infection in 1893. He remained a hated figure in New Orleans until his death and long after. Butler was replaced by the less controversial General Nathaniel Banks and the occupation of New Orleans dragged on for the next 15 years. Federal troops remained in the city long after the war until April of 1877, giving New Orleans the rather dubious honor of suffering under military rule longer than any other Southern city. Well, it's a place where you just can't keep people under control, I guess. It was a contentious period that left a mark on the history of the city through legends, lore, and of course, ghosts. There are a number of places in New Orleans where the spirits of the Civil War era are believed to linger. Most of them seem to be hotels, like the Bourbon Orleans, which we discussed in an earlier episode, and we'll save these locations for future episodes this season. For now, we'll take a closer look at two of the most famous Civil War era hauntings in the city. 
The first, the Griffin House, is located at 1447 Constant Street in the Lower Garden District, a streetcar ride and a short walk away from the French Quarter. It was a house that had once been haunted for as long as anyone in the neighborhood could remember. Whether it is still haunted or not is unknown, but the stories that have been told about the place over the years have managed to chill the blood of even veteran ghost enthusiasts. The house, a narrow Greek Revival-style home with four large pillars and a balcony across the front, was built by Adam Griffin in 1852. He lived there for less than a decade, abandoning the house when the Civil War came to the city. It had been built as an elegant place with high ceilings and spacious rooms that were perfect for dress balls and elegant parties, but there was little in the way of festivity going on in 1862 when the Federal Army took over New Orleans. When General Butler's troops occupied the city, they selected homes and buildings in which to house men and supplies. The house on Constant Street was one of the buildings selected for occupation. Legend has it, and by that I mean only stories and no documentation that can be found, that the first soldiers who entered the house heard the chilling sound of rattling chains and groaning coming from upstairs. In the third floor attic, they found several slaves shackled to a wall and in a state of advanced starvation. Some of them even had untreated, maggot-infested wounds. They'd apparently been left behind when the occupants of the house fled with the arrival of the Union Army. The slaves were removed to a field hospital where they could be cared for, and the house was turned into a barracks for soldiers and for Union prisoners. When Butler occupied New Orleans, he passed an order stating that anyone caught looting would be shot, and this included his own troops. Two Union officers were arrested for this offense and were confined to the house on Constant Street. They spent much of their time drinking whiskey that had been given to them by sympathetic guards and singing. They seemed to only know one song, though. John Brown's Body, a popular northern tune about the abolitionists who attempted to free slaves in the 1850s. If you're wondering what the song sounds like, here's a little bit of it. John Brown's body lies moaning in the grave While weep the sons of bondage whom he ventured out to save And though he lost his life in his struggle to free the slaves His truth is marching on John Brown's body lies moaning in the grave As you can see, the words might not be familiar to you, but the tune certainly is. Anyway... The story goes that the repetitive singing of the popular Northern song was really just a ruse to hide the fact that the men were actually Confederate deserters who'd stolen Union uniforms. They were wearing them when they got caught. They knew if they were discovered to be Southerners, they would be killed, so they attempted to hide the fact by singing John Brown's body over and over again. But when they learned that even Union soldiers caught looting would be shot, they bribed a guard to bring them a pair of pistols. They lay down beside each other on the bed, pointed the guns to one another's hearts, and pulled the triggers at the same time. Their bodies were found the following morning sprawled on a mattress so stained with blood that it had seeped through the floorboards to the rooms below. After the war, the building was used for commercial purposes as a lamp factory, a mattress factory, and a perfume bottling plant. In the 1920s, it was a union hiring hall, and one previous owner of the house was an old man who rebuilt air conditioners until he disappeared one day without a trace. The old man always claimed he had, quote, seen things in the house, but when pressured to elaborate, he always refused. Over the years, there were many reports of a haunting in the house. 
All through stories told by various owners, the ghosts remained a constant presence. Occupants of the Griffin House spoke of hearing heavy boots coming from the third floor, the rattling of chains and screams from the dark attic. Neighbors and passerby also claimed to see two white-faced soldiers in blue uniforms looking out the third floor windows. Both of them were said to be holding a bottle in their hand and singing the words to John Brown's body. Several incidents took place in 1936 during the period when the house was used as a lamp factory. One night, a maintenance man was working there alone. It was just shortly before midnight and he was cleaning on the second floor. To his surprise, a nearby door opened up on its own. As he stood there in shock, the sound of a pair of boots stomped into the room with him. Then a second pair of boots joined the first and the pounding footsteps became almost deafening. Terrified, he scrambled for the staircase as the sound began to fade away. The footsteps were immediately followed by the spectral sound of drunken laughter and then the refrain of John Brown's body. The maintenance worker claimed to still be able to hear the horrifying voices as he ran down the street. Nothing, including the promise of increased wages, could convince him to return to the house again. Shortly after taking possession of the house, the owner, Isidore Seelig, arrived at the factory one morning and was nearly killed. He and his brother were standing in the front hall talking when a concrete block was curled at them from the head of the stairs. It didn't fall, Seelig later reported. It was thrown. It never struck a stair as it came, and it landed just where we had been standing. My brother saw it coming and pushed me out of the way. It probably would have killed us if it had hit us. The two men charged upstairs to find out who was there and discovered the place was empty. In one area where the floors had been freshly painted the day before, they found not a single footprint. The upper doors and windows were all locked, added Selick, and when we went upstairs, no one was there and no one had been there. No such blocks had been used in any of the repairing around the building either. A few years later, even though it seemed as if it would have been impossible to keep tenants in the place, it was turned into a boarding house for a brief time. A widow rented out one of the second floor rooms and everything seemed very quiet until one afternoon when she was sitting by the window with her sewing. She happened to look down and noticed there was blood on her arm. Thinking she must have accidentally scratched herself, she wiped the blood away, but it was back again an instant later. Before she could wipe it off, another drop of blood appeared on her arm and then another and another. She quickly looked up and saw the blood was oozing through a crack in the ceiling directly above where she was sitting. As she tried to understand what was happening, she heard an eerie sound coming from the third floor, the faint strains of John Brown's body being sung by two drunken men. The widow ran shrieking from the house, never to return. Her relatives later came back and packed up her belongings for her. They encountered no dripping blood in the house, but as they were locking the front door, they claimed to see two soldiers in blue uniforms looking down at them from the attic window. In the late 1970s, Kathleen and Anthony Jones bought the house with the intention of restoring it. They briefly worked on the place, and while they claimed they never experienced anything out of the ordinary, they never occupied the house, and it was soon sold again. By this time, the neighborhood had become run down and dangerous. No one was telling stories about ghosts. They were just trying to stay alive. But one anonymous witness did have an interesting account that he passed on. He said that the rundown area, which was located near what was then a notorious housing project, had deteriorated to the point that any abandoned house in the neighborhood was soon taken over by drug addicts. However, they did not stay at 1447 Constant Street for long. They claimed they saw two white men there in, quote, police uniforms that walked through walls and sang old-timey songs. 
Well, that was more than enough to keep trespassers out of the place. In recent years, the neighborhood has seen new life and the Griffin House has been sold and renovated several times. It's in beautiful condition now and several families have lived there peacefully and without complaint. So far, since the early 2000s, nothing supernatural has been reported at the house. We can only wonder if the two lost soldiers have finally found some peace. During the daylight hours, the Beauregard Keys House in the French Quarter plays host to visitors and tourists from across the country, all stopping in to see rooms filled with antiques and artifacts of the past. But some say at night, after the tourists and guides have left for the day, other visitors come to this house. Spectral travelers from a time long past. The sounds of gunshots and cannons fill the air, along with the screams of dying men and the agony of wounded horses as the battlefields of the Civil War are recreated within the walls of this house. The Phantom Army of the Civil War has become one of the greatest ghost stories of New Orleans and whether truth or legend, this house has been home to violence and death in its past. General Pierre Gustave Beauregard was one of the leading generals of the Confederate Army. He will always be remembered for his great victories and crushing failures during the war. He was the man who gave the order to fire upon Fort Sumter in April 1861 and as one of the few experienced generals in the early days of the Civil War, led the Confederates to a rousing victory during the opening battles of the conflict. Later, though, he would blame himself for the terrible defeat at Shiloh. After the war, the general returned to New Orleans and settled into his home at 1113 Charter Street in the French Quarter. The house with its granite staircases and wrought iron lacework was built in 1827 by Joseph Le Carpenter for the family of Paul Charles Morphy, who is still regarded as the world's greatest chess player. Morphy was born in this house in June of 1837. It's unknown exactly when General Beauregard bought the mansion, but tradition holds he was still Major Beauregard then, fresh home from the Mexican War. After the Civil War ended, General Beauregard returned to New Orleans and continued a distinguished career outside of the military. He took a position as a chief engineer for a railroad, became involved with a streetcar company, became the supervisor for drawings of the Louisiana State Lottery, and wrote three books about the war. There's no record that the house was haunted before the general's death in 1893 or for many years afterward, but it did become the scene of death and tragedy a little over a decade later. In the late 1880s and 1890s, a flood of Italian immigrants arrived in New Orleans. Many of them came from Sicily and brought their traditions with them, including the Mafia. While many of the Italian immigrants started small businesses or worked in factories, others turned to organized crime and soon made their fortunes in the underworld. In 1909, the Beauregard House was purchased by the Giancana family, a wealthy Italian clan who trafficked in stolen goods and ran a large gambling operation in the city. It was a source of money that earned them many enemies. One night, neighbors reporting hearing the sounds of gunshots and angry shouting at the house. When the police arrived, they found three dead men and a fourth man wounded. The victims were identified as members of the mafia, and it was learned that the Giancanas had been the target of an attempted extortion plot by criminals that were often referred to as the Black Hand. When the family wouldn't pay off, gunmen came after them, but the family was ready and killed their would-be assassins. The attempts to wipe out the family was repeated several times in the years that followed, and the Giancanas maintained the former general's old house like a fortress. 
Finally, in the early 1920s, they moved to a more peaceful part of the city. In 1925, new owners of the house decided to convert it into a macaroni factory. A number of concerned residents in the area became worried about the loss of this historic site, and an association was formed to buy the house and turn it into a museum honoring General Beauregard and the Civil War. It later became a National Historic Site. In the years following World War II, rumors began to surface about the sounds of men in battle coming from the house and from the garden behind it. The sounds were not those of modern arms, witness claimed, but the sounds of Civil War period pistols and muskets. They were convinced the house was haunted. But was the haunting actually connected to the violence that occurred there during the days of the Giancana's occupancy? Or was the Civil War really replaying itself within the confines of the general's house, even though no battles had ever taken place at or even near it? Or stranger still, could the books written by General Beauregard have caused the house to become haunted? Perhaps the general's vivid recollections of bloody battles like Shiloh had in some way created their own ghosts. Well, no one knew for sure, and the people who managed the house weren't talking. The staff members denied for years that anything strange was taking place at the house. The director of the place in the 1970s, Alma H. Neal, denied all the stories in an interview. She said, quote, we do not know of anything supernatural taking place here. Well, tour guides today will tell you that all the ghost stories are old wives' tales. Sometimes. But are they really? While the stories of the Phantom Army were quickly dismissed by the tour guides and the director of the house when I interviewed them a few years ago, they did admit that odd things do sometimes occur there. This is a very old house, and it can get a little creepy, not scary at times, I was told, and the director added, if we do have ghosts or spirits here, then they're happy ones, and they leave us alone, and we leave them alone. Guides said they've always been skeptical of the stories of the ghostly army, but could tell other stories from the Civil War era. According to one legend, General Beauregard and his wife once planned a grand ball in the house, but unfortunately, the general had to leave the city on business and the party never took place. The story says that every once in a while, the ghosts of the general and his wife returned to the ballroom to host the festivities that never took place. Just a spooky legend? Not everyone thinks so. Some years ago, a young woman rented the apartment that is located below the ballroom. The next morning when the girl was asked how her night was, she replied she'd been unable to sleep much, seemed quite disgruntled over the fact that someone in the house had been playing music and moving furniture around during the early morning hours. Strangely though, no one else had been in the house that night. The house is also said to be the home to a ghost cat that's been named Caroline and a ghost dog, too. According to the staff, the dog is the spirit of Lucky, a cocker spaniel that was owned by the house's other most famous resident, author Francis Parkinson Keyes. A few days after the novelist died in 1970, Lucky died, too. Friends stated that the animal was pining away with a broken heart for her master. Many believe that Lucky's spirit has remained behind in the house. The director told a story of a blind woman who visited the home with a service dog one day. When they entered the bedroom that once belonged to Keys, the dog stiffened and began to shake with fear. Oh, you must have another dog in here, the blind lady said, noticing her own dog's nervousness. The director replied that the dog must have a very keen sense of smell because there had not been another dog in the house since 1970, but the blind woman shook her head. No, she replied, he only acts like this when he actually sees another dog. So Phantom Army, maybe not, but it certainly seems like something is still lingering in the home of New Orleans' most famous Civil War general.
podcast I listen to, it's uh, they're always popping open cans. Oh yeah, on there, and I don't know if it's you know like soda or Red Bulls or what, but they're constantly doing it. I know people will play like a drinking game with that, where every time they hear them pop a can, they'll take yeah. a shot or yeah. something. We can come up with a fun drinking game for our podcast, I bet. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Uh, okay, you ready? Yep. All righty. Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now deep into season four of the podcast, Haunted New Orleans. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey, I'm I'm looking at my screen here, and I'm starting to think I'm not on the same episode you are. <laughs> Just because of the intro? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's um, the same for all the... No, I changed episode. it. Oh, you did? Yeah. I oh. changed it on here, so it's different. So. Oh, well, I just actually copied oh. and pasted okay, from the well, last one. Okay, well, no, we're ones. fine then. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> I got my, a little worried there. That's my I'm bad. Like, um, am I doing the right episode? I've actually yeah. wondered before if you change things and don't I tell do. me to see if I trip yeah, up. But I, I do I, sometimes. I don't, not that much. Just a little bit, just to... to because I kept feeling bad about saying we were deep into right. every episode, so I changed it, and it's okay. Well, it gets better now the farther we get right, into the Right, because I think season. it was in like season two, or episode two. It's like, okay, well, you're not deep into anything. It's episode two. Like I said, it was um, deep into the research. It's, yeah, it's, there you go. Yeah, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. So. Oh, man. Usually I say like, oh, how's it going? We haven't caught up in a long time, but I just saw you <laughs> yeah, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, right. We are, um, yeah, I, I have on my notes here to thank everyone for their generosity at Dead at Winter, at, of our Dead at Winter event, because that's our big, you know, our big food bank event. Yep. People bring in all kinds of stuff, but... I just decided not to lie about it because it hasn't even happened yet. It when is we're not. recording this. We're we are way ahead of the game here, and so we are uh, recording this before Dead of Winter, even though you're not going to hear it until after. Uh, actually, a couple weeks after. I yeah. think. Um, so uh, I I I was just going to run with it, but I decided maybe I better not. I so, was ready. Yeah, I'm I'm going to talk about a couple of upcoming events, but my concern is is that by the time time you guys hear this they'll already be sold out but you never know never so know. we'll we'll just say that there's still some spots left on these three events that i wanted to talk about that we've got coming up because uh two of them are, are brand new things we've never done before um and one of them is on march 14th our first ghost of the river road tour for the season and i always enjoy doing those and i know if officially by the time it happens it's almost technically by the calendar, it'll mm -hmm. be spring. Yeah. Uh, almost spring. And I always feel like spring is coming when we start doing tours again. Yeah. So um, on the 14th, uh, Lisa and I will be doing a Ghost of the River Road tour. So if you are available, if we still have spots available, we hope you come along. That is uh, one of my favorite tours that I do anywhere. Um, the week before that, I'm doing a Resurrection Mary tour in Chicago, but that's been sold out for a while. Yeah. So, but this will be fun. So it's, it's for me, it's starting to feel like spring by the time we get to that point. But uh, the, what I want to talk about too is on March 13th, which is Friday the 13th, by the way, we've got a brand new evening with event, one we've never done before. And it is the evening with the spirit world, which is a look back at how the supernatural has influenced American history. Um, it starts with the Fox sisters and goes through mediums and magicians and ghost hunters and seances and ectoplasm and table wrappings and Ouija boards and spirit cabinets and all that kind of stuff. So um, that's going to be a fun one. And uh, that's one I've been really looking forward to. So if you uh, you hear this and you think, hey, man, 
again, that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, hopefully, by the time you hear this, we'll still have some spots left. So right. you could come with us. And so, so anybody that read the American Hauntings book, yeah, they want more context. Yeah, yeah. Stuff. you, you kind of see it with more, you know, more imagery and that kind of stuff. Got so. it. And on the 21st, and again, this is at this point that I'm doing this, we are over half full on this thing. So I don't know where we're going to be at by the time you hear it. But on March 21st is that evening with the Limp family event, the big one with um, uh, Shift Films out of St. Louis is going to be doing a screening um, of the, the, a new documentary made about Elsa Limp's death called Limp's Last Rite. And it's being officially released on March 20th, which is the night before they're doing a screening in St. Louis that's already sold out, which is the anniversary of Elsa's death. Mm -hmm. And then so on the 21st, I'll be presenting, we'll be having dinner, I'll be presenting uh, an evening with the Limp family, followed by, and then I will not be talking a lot about Elsa during that, and then that'll be followed by the documentary screening with the filmmakers, and they'll be doing a QA. and a and they've got a true crime packet they're going to be handing out to everybody. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a really good night. Um, so that is that is really filling up fast. And um, if you go to altonhauntings.com, you can find all the information about all of these events that are coming up. Um, and they'll be coming pretty quick by the time you hear this. And also, when we're recording this, we are now past one-third sold out for the Haunted America Conference. Nice. Um, tickets just keep selling. Um, we've got a great lineup of speakers, all those new new after-hour workshops, and then after-hour events. Um, you really don't want to miss it. We, we really hope to see a lot of people from, you know, our podcast family out there uh, in the audience this year. It'd be great to have as many people there as we can get. Um, and, you know, we'll be set up. Cody will be set up talking to people, doing interviews. Uh, I'll be running around the entire time like I always do. Yeah. Uh, but I'll be there, of it's course. fun to watch. Hosting the event, speaking, that kind of stuff. So um, if you go to ghostconference.net, you can get tickets and you can see all the stuff we've got coming up for this year. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about more about the conference as time goes on. But um, like I said, we're, we're recording this before dead of winter and we're more than a third sold out now. So it's... I really don't think that we're going to um, have anything open by the time the conference gets here this year. Uh, we will sell out again this year, I believe. And so if you're even thinking about going, now's the time to get your tickets. Yeah, yeah. I know it's still early, like you said. Stuff's yeah, going to sell out. Yeah, but it's already filling up. So, Troy, it is January 25th, right? Yeah, it is. I, it, okay. This is my, <laughs> my third annual Dry January. Yes, it is. Which I tell my mother, it means uh, no drinks, no drugs, no fun. <laughs> she doesn't appreciate that. Yeah, right. I have been to the gym over 30 times. Really? I ha- I, I'm, I have to keep myself occupied. Well, it's, it's, sure. It's not like I'm going to slam a fifth, you know, into my face, but to just avoid like that glass of wine with dinner, you know, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know how people do this all the time. It's January 25th. I'm, uh, <laughs> well, I, it's only six more days. I so. know. I know. But we're recording so many episodes that I'm like, I, know, I just we like have. to have a drink with my buddy. I and, know. I know. Oh, geez. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to talk to you about before we dive into this episode, The Outsider. Yes. It's so good. It's phenomenal. I, it I love it. Yeah. By the time people hear this, it will have gotten, it'll be most of the way finished. I think it's 10 episodes, I believe. And we're this weekend will be episode four. And yes. um, if, if you're not familiar with it, you know, Cody and I, if you listen to our Halloween episode, we talked really extensively about Stephen King and Stephen King properties that were available last year. Um, including Dr. Sleep, which I put as number one on my list for last yep. year. And I just last night watched the director's cut, 
with an extra 25 minutes. And How's that? Um, it was good. It's good. It did. It did. It adds more to the film that Mike Flanagan is the things he's famous for that family element, the, the personal connections you yeah. get more, um, with Dick Halloran at the beginning. Um, there's more throughout and it establishes a, a deeper contact makes it more plausible, like the friendships sure. and the family connections in that 25 minutes than even in the theatrical one. I, so I really liked it. I thought they did a great job with it, but that, and I'm telling you that the, the base boy, the baseball boy sequence is, I still think is probably one of the scariest film sequences I saw last year. I, I was it's shocked. so unnerving yeah. and yeah. And just, it's something else, you know, it's really something else. So, um, but The Outsider, back to The Outsider. Yeah. I had read the book when it came out last year or the year before and really liked it. I enjoyed the book a lot, but I, I honestly like, I like the show better. Yeah. It's better than the book. And that doesn't happen very often. No. Um, you know, I talked about Dr. Sleep. I said, you know, he took some of the things that bothered me about the book and got rid of them and blended everything so that it all worked. But in this case, it's not so much getting rid of stuff. It's just bringing it to life in a way, in a more detailed way, even than the book did. Okay. Um, and presenting, moving the story along to the more important parts of it. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's a massive book. So 10 episodes is a great way for this to bring across, but I'm glad you started watching it because it is, yeah. it is really good. I'm loving it. I was I blown away book. by the first couple of episodes. That's how I was, um, a couple of years ago, I think, or a year or so ago. And do you remember me talking about the alienist that I was no, watching? I the, so. They did it on TNT. Um, it was a Caleb Carr book from the early nineties and had never been turned. They could never turn it into a movie because it was so much detail and mm. so much stuff going on. And so they did it as a, like a 10 episode series for TNT and it was just phenomenal. And, uh, I, I feel like this is the same thing they've done with this is give it the, the space it needs yeah. to really tell a story, but yeah, it's good. It's good stuff. Awesome. So. Yeah. Well, I'd recommend people check it out. Yeah, it's on HBO. Did I? I don't know if I said oh, that. Oh yeah, I don't but know it's if on you HBO. Um, and but well worth it. I mean, it's it's like a supernatural true detective. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yep, that's a great uh, way to describe really, it. Really good. Awesome. Well, we have a quick listener review. This one is titled "Solid Podcast." It says, "I like the seasons." Parenthetical on murdered in their beds right now. And I've learned about hauntings I didn't know about. It's informative and easy to digest. And tell Troy some people do listen to the end and appreciate it, and I'll start taking stars away if he keeps interrupting you. Please do not do that. <laughs> I appreciate the sentiment, uh, but I need those stars. But thank you so much for leaving the review. That's from Windsong3099. Cool. Are you ready to dive sure. in? Oh, yeah, yeah. All right, so Spirits of the Civil War. You mentioned New Orleans spent the vast majority of the Civil War under Union control, right? Uh, which seems weird when you, when you first start thinking you about think it. About the location, the of it. location sure. is key. So Lincoln's elected on November sixth, eighteen sixty. Five months later, the war starts. So this guy's just in the thick of it, real quick. South Carolina is the first to leave the Union, voting one hundred sixty-nine to zero. Louisiana leaves later; it's a sixth state to do so. And March twenty-first transfers loyalty to Confederate States of America. And you brought up a good point. It's it's free people of color who are really caught in, in the, the middle, middle of this shit. Right. And they have the, the most to lose. And the, the Union knew, like we mentioned by the placement, how important New Orleans was for the war and began a blockade on the Mississippi River. Because like you said, you want to tackle those routes and, and bridges right. and rivers right. and, and supplies and things like that. 
Now, the attack on New Orleans, uh, the Confederates expected an attack from the north and not from the Gulf of Mexico. I think this is brilliant. Yeah, yeah. It's just great war strategy, which I I really, really love. So April 24th, uh, 1862, a fleet of 24 ships led by David G. Is it Farragut? Farragut, yeah. Farragut attacks the city. So he's the damn the torpedoes guy. Right, that's the guy. Nice. Not not from this battle, but later on in 1864, but he's the guy who said that first. Okay. And so, but that's what he became famous for. But really what he did here was just as impressive. I mean, he really captured an entire city. Well, I mean, you say he didn't fire a shot and he didn't at New Orleans. I mean, they did have to get past those two forts Mm -hmm. on either side of the channel. So that was, I mean, it was tough to get through. I mean, it did have some protection, but really most of the soldiers were, you know, on the other side waiting for people to come, waiting for the Union to come down the Mississippi, mm-hmm. or at least to come from north to south rather than come from the Gulf. Right. Uh, they just were ill prepared. I mean, I don't know why, but they were. You'd think so there you would one think guy. That, yeah, that you might have thought ahead, but no one did. So not so much. So you yeah. said like, he tries one daring plan and it fails. So he tries an even riskier plan, gets four flagships, make it past the forts upriver. Uh, General Lovell of the Confederacy decided to he decided basically let's run, live to fight another day, right. protect the city, and the city could have been very, oh, very, very different. destroyed. Uh, yeah, it could have been utterly destroyed, and that's you know. That's what happened with when you, when you go down south and you go, say, to Atlanta, mm-hmm. let's say you go to Atlanta and there's nothing left from yeah. the Civil War era because they burned the whole city. Right. But then you go to Savannah and it's a whole different story yeah. because they didn't burn Savannah. Um, that was the like the last place that Sherman took on his march. And for whatever reason, he decided not to destroy it. He presented it to President Lincoln as a Christmas gift. I don't know if you've ever heard I that story. I didn't know that. Yeah. No, that's, that's uh, he nice. sent him a telegram and presented Savannah as a Christmas gift. And so that city was spared. And so they still have all that history where all of these other cities, it didn't. So let's say Farragut had, you know, brought his all his warships out and they just stopped start bombarding the city with these mortars they'd been using on the forts, you know, the French Quarter would be a whole different place now than it is. Uh, we wouldn't have any of those buildings left because a vast majority of them probably would have been destroyed. Yeah. So, oh, man, if New yeah. Orleans was just another Atlanta. Right. It would be a whole oh. different. Well, it wouldn't be what it is. That's right. for sure. So Right. And so Lincoln names Benjamin Butler of Massachusetts, not Benjamin Buttons, uh, to be <laughs> right. the military governor of New Orleans. So and he's w- super popular. Yeah. Everybody loves him. Right. I mean, they call and him Butler the Beast because they like him, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so my question, was Farragut just like, cool, like, don't even consider me or was well, that no, I don't think bag? that wasn't his thing. Yeah. He wasn't, I mean, he was a, you know, he was a, a, a commander of naval forces. Mm-hmm. He was not a, he would, he didn't want to be a governor. Yeah. Or not a politician. This guy, this guy is a politician. Well, yeah. He was like given, it. I mean, the guys that's back at that time, you know, they would just, they give these guys military ranks and then just cause they came from important families mm-hmm. or whatever. And really the ranks didn't mean anything. Butler hadn't done anything to distinguish himself as this, you know, commanding general. They gave him this governor position, you know, to oversee the city and to keep it under occupation. And then he being a politician then proceeded to rape and pillage the city. I mean, stole everything that wasn't nailed down As they do. between him and his brother. And I'm sure some of his cronies, they were pocketing all kinds of money. You mm-hmm. know, they shut down the gambling parlors and then told them they could reopen, but they had to pay a fee, which was paid to his brother. Yeah. And, you know, it was just crazy stuff. And that's, you know, the story about, 
you know, it's, it's how much truth there is to the story about the spoons or yeah. the silverware, you know, may be a legend, but they call them that because he was just so petty and would steal anything. Mm-hmm. This woman had, you know, sterling silver set of, you know, forks and spoons right. that she wanted to take with her and it was taken from her. And I, I don't think it was him personally who took it from her, but it was under his orders. So it was just another way to make this guy look bad. Mm, and hangs know. a guy for desecrating American flag. Right. Uh, but then he, I mean, he shuts down the newspapers yeah. again, freedom of the press, but we're going to shut that down. Yeah, he's and, harassing foreign diplomats. Yeah, yeah. That was the beauty of it right there is they just didn't care, you know, about he oh he was looking at well this is I can I can get money out of mm-hmm. this and I can confiscate this money if I say this guy's a you know helping out the Confederacy yeah you know and it wasn't I mean there's no way to know what he was doing but you know what what was happening is that he was really just sort of pissing off all these European powers mm-hmm. and at that point Britain was. Uh, helping out the Confederacy. They were already starting to help them out with supplies and ships. Yeah, why not? Because why not? You know, and um, the last thing that the United States wanted was to have more people helping the Confederacy Mm -hmm. and turning against them. So this guy's down there just, you know, stealing from everybody, including these foreign diplomats. And that was not going to fly. That's uh, that's what got him recalled, mm-hmm. was that. Not anything else he did. Well, he's ignoring Lincoln's orders and right. things, <laughs> right. too, which right. just seems Again, like... Again, po- it's just politicians. You're right. You know, it's a, he's not a military guy, so he's not really taking any of it seriously. Sure, yeah. Uh, well, so he institutes order number 28. Essentially, so, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, just makes it so he can arrest any woman and fine her right. if he wants exactly. to. <laughs> if she mouths off to them or makes fun of them or, you know, I, and they were having a real problem with this. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, well, I mean, let's be honest, really. Oh, my feelings are hurt. Right. I mean, really, what were these women doing other than, you know, I don't know. I'm not trying to defend the Confederate cause here. But on the other hand, really, this was this was some very nonviolent, you know, protests mm-hmm. here is, you know, I'm wearing Confederate colors or I'm, you know, I'm saying mean things. OK. And yes, there was a woman who dumped a chamber pot out of a window. But that's funny. She could have said it was an accident because everybody did that back then. They just dumped their chamber pots off the balcony into the street. And yeah. Roll into the sewer and then probably into the drinking water. And gee, where did cholera come from? I had but no idea. anyway, you know, this woman did do that. And that was supposedly the last straw. But Really, it was this was like an order that he issued over hurt feelings. Yeah, I mean that's, that's what it boils down. <laughs> Sounds to, like that know? guy. Yeah, and of course, so Jefferson Davis is like, I'm putting a price on this guy's head. Uh-huh. Which I don't blame him. I love they hang portraits of him in the brothels, uh, which is well, they he passed out all these these portraits that yeah. were supposed to be. I mean, it, it, again, this was and people would be like, why in the world would he have all these? What's an ego thing? Made? Yeah, it was an ego thing. And he wanted his picture as the commander to be hung everywhere. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, when you remember, well, you may not, but probably a not. lot of our listeners will remember when, you know, we rolled into Baghdad in 2003 and tore down all the statues of Saddam Hussein. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this guy had pictures of himself everywhere. It's kind of like, you know, the Russians did it with Lenin and right. Stalin. And, and, yeah. yeah, the dictators want to hang their portraits everywhere. So, you know, the prostitutes were taking all the portraits and they were cutting his face out of them and put them in the bottom of their chamber pots, right. which I thought was it's hilarious. Great. It's great. You know. 
Hey, oh yeah, orders the phrase, uh, the union must and shall be preserved, carved into the statue of Andrew yeah, Jackson. Which is still there. I don't know if you remember when we were in Jackson I Square. I don't remember yeah, seeing that. chiseled it in there at the base of the statue, so it's it's still there. That's crazy. And yeah. uh, let's see, so he frees the slaves by right. essentially confiscating the plantation. Right, because you couldn't, you couldn't, there was no order at this point to free the slaves. That wouldn't come about until 1863. And, you know, there had been people who had been suggesting this, mm-hmm. and Lincoln had been balking at the idea. So he really didn't have the authority to free the slaves in Louisiana, but he was just saying, well, that, you know, they're, we're going to, we're under military command, we're going to confiscate them. Mm-hmm. And then ends up with them and doesn't know what to do with them, you yeah. know? And so that became an issue. So, I mean, but that, again, politician, you know, right. I'm, I'm going to do this and I'll show you. And then now what, you know? So that's, that's kind of what he ended up with on his hands. All right. And he's eventually recalled from new Orleans, uh, switches parties, vows revenge against, uh, William Seward. The guy he thinks is responsible and is replaced by the much less controversial general, uh, Nathaniel Banks for the next 15 years. Yeah. 15 years. People don't even realize that or don't even think about it. I mean, we don't, I mean, we, we talk about now, we'll talk about, oh, we've still got troops in Afghanistan. We've got troops in Iraq still mm-hmm. or wherever. And we've been there for years and years and years. But, you know, people don't remember that after World War II, we occupied Germany. Well, all of the Allied forces did. Uh, we occupied Japan for years and years in Okinawa. And, you know, these places were occupied. And now we still have bases in these places. But you know, like Okinawa or in Germany, mm-hmm. but this was an actual occupation. We were running their governments. Um, and this is a case of where you've got an American city uh, that is being occupied by the federal government until 1877. I mean, that's a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, that's all the way through Reconstruction. That's running, literally running the government of New Orleans, the federal government is, for all those years. And, you know, with military troops on the streets in place of police officers. I mean, that's, that's a... Doesn't sound fun. No, it doesn't sound fun. And we don't realize just how long that stuff drug on. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it did because New Orleans was seen as this rebellious city. And I mean, still is, but I mean, it was always seen that way. And so nobody was taking any chances. Yeah, I know it makes sense, but at the same time, yeah, like you said, with the with sucks. the people they have there, I'm not yeah. surprised. <laughs> right, right. And uh, it's not going to get any better this episode or next episode no, with people no. not uh, looking favorably upon the people that live there right. for their practices. Right. But let's jump to some of the the haunted houses of the Civil War. Let's talk about the Griffin House. So, 1447 Constance Street. So it's a narrow Greek revival style home with four large pillars, balcony across the front, built by Adam Griffin in 1852. And I love this. You said legend has it. And by that, I mean only stories and no documentation <laughs> right, can right. be found. The first soldiers who entered the house heard the chilling sound of rattling chains and groaning coming from upstairs. In the third floor attic, they found several slaves shackled to the wall in a state of advanced starvation. Some of them even had untreated maggot infested wounds. They had apparently been left behind when the occupants of the house fled with the arrival of the Union Army. The slaves were removed to a field hospital where they could be cared for. And the house was turned into barracks for soldiers in the Union prisoners. It sounds terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it, it may have happened or it may just be a, story, a tall tale. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's impossible to know. Cause I said, there's no documentation of it anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, 
you know, had had heard the story, so I included it with that caveat. Right. You know, who knows? That makes sense. And you talked, we're going to talk a lot about John Brown, John Brown's body song. And this is the, mine eyes have seen the glory tune, right? That Um, that song? It's, yeah. John Brown's body. Well, we played it. I mean, we played it in the episode, so you heard it. Yes. So I I mean, it sounds familiar. That's the tune. That's the tune. And there's, you know, they use that tune for a lot of things. Um, I've heard several different songs to that same tune, but, um, but that's one that became popular after he was hanged Mm -hmm. and it became sort of an abolitionist song. Right. And so it was regarded as a Northern tune, like Yankee Doodle or Mm -hmm. something. You know, it wasn't Dixie, you know. Right. So, you know, this is that's a song that was well known at the time. I mean, there were no radios or anything. So, you know, songs spread by popularity from people singing them from place to place. Mm -hmm. And so this seemed like to these guys, that seemed like a great song to sing because uh, it would it it would cause everyone to think that they were Union soldiers. Right. Right. And I I swear we had some version of this in like church or something I, somewhere i've heard this song it's, yeah the it's battle hymn of the republic head. yeah yeah, yeah it's yes, the same song. yes yes or it's the same tune it's the same melody right so. right has anyone done a hip-hop remix of this yet i'm thinking no There's um no billy eilish no. or lord I'm or something sure not yeah whatever so. the kids are listening to these days i don't know somebody <laughs> will make it happen i'm sure but uh, yeah i uh, doubt it you don't, you don't think so? No, I don't think so. You'd be surprised. The reason the I had, the reason I insisted on this us putting this in the episode with, with from a source was so people would understand. It's important to this story, right? But if you don't know the song, what's the point to the story? Sure. You see what I'm saying? So you kind of need a reference. So that's why I made you find it. Yes, put it, it in. It's, I mean, it's very easy to find on Google. Oh yeah, you'll, yeah. You'll find yeah. a bunch of them. Yeah. Um, but I like the story. It's the two, uh, allegedly, I guess, two Confederate soldiers. This is a creepy story. It is. They, they steal the Union uniforms um, and eventually lay down with their guns pointed at the other one's head and shoot each other dead when they think they're going to be caught. I mean, it is a creepy story. It it's is. super tragic. Yeah. And I mean, you just want to hope that you don't go a little too early. Right, right. The other. So we're we going on three or we're we going on shoot? Right, I, I don't right, know. right, right. Uh, the house eventually like we shoot on three or yeah. do, we go, do we actually shoot on four? Yeah, we really need yeah, to get this. all the way through three? Yes. You, know, you so. do some test runs with like rock, paper, scissors or something, <laughs> but you want to get this right. But this, this house, like every other house and building in New Orleans, it seems like is eventually it's a lamp factory and oh, a yeah. mattress yeah. factory. Yeah, well, this was this was this was and and I mentioned that too by the seventies. This was a this was a really rough neighborhood. Yeah, I mean really really rough. Um, but I mean it's not the house is beautiful now. Yeah, I mean beautiful, but. Yeah, it was rough. Yeah, right. and then where the song really comes into play are, are these ghost stories. Talk about occupants of the house. Uh, they hear heavy boots coming from the third floor, rattling a chain, screams and things like that. Um, but people we hear people singing the song or right. humming the tune right. and whistling it. So it's it's a creepy song. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, that, that definitely makes it creepy because I think that's, worse than just footsteps or blood dripping from the ceiling or something. It's this, it's the music, you know, it's the song. And I think that's always been for me, like, you know, you watch a, you know, a horror film or a scary movie that that's always, those are always the creepiest hauntings. Right. The the ones with the the music connected. What is it? The muffin man song. Isn't that in some, Oh yeah. My mom can't listen to that song to this day, but I can't remember why. Was it in it or was it in, I don't know. It was in something she saw. 
huh. as a child, I know, or, or growing up, but she said she can't listen to that song for whatever reason. But Muffin Man. They're just ruining music. But yeah. um, <laughs> uh, talk. I like the story about the, the two men almost killed by the concrete block that yeah. was thrown at them. Right. And they right. say it wasn't anything being used in construction or anything. Yeah, they didn't know where it came from. Yeah. Idea. That's yeah. bizarre. And it's eventually turned into a boarding house. And you mentioned this before, but yeah, the widow realizing like blood's dripping under yeah. her arm from the yeah. ceiling. And she hears a song too. More people are seeing men in uniform singing old timey songs. I think. Well, that's, I like that one because it's like crackheads that are like in the house. Oh, okay. And they're telling stories Squatters about that. Stuff. Why they left is because they saw two guys, two white guys in what looked like police uniforms. Yes, yes. You know, singing old timey songs. And I thought, yeah, that, well, and you know, if you have no concept of history whatsoever, mm-hmm. and that's what you see, I mean, you are, you know, in there, you know, shooting up or yeah. whatever. And that's what you see is a couple of guys that look like cops who disappear that's going to freak you out. Uh, yeah, that, <laughs> you know. I don't blame you. Yeah, regardless of what kind of drugs you're on. Yeah. This next house, I haven't heard you say it. How do I pronounce it? Beauregard. Beauregard Keys House. Right. So sounds of, we hear sounds of gunshots, cannons, screams of dying men, wounded horses are heard, which I don't know what that sounds like, but I can imagine it's terrible. Uh, General Pierre Gustave Beauregard gave Beauregard Beauregard Beauregardless gave the order. You, don't you ever have you never watched Bugs Bunny movies because the hmm. Southern Plantation guy is always named Beauregard Beauregard, Beauregard. No, yeah. I remember should have taken a left turn at Albuquerque. Yeah, right. That's well, where anyway. my knowledge ends. Yeah, uh, Beauregard gave the order to fire on. Fort Sumter, but he also blamed himself for the terrible defeat at Shiloh. He dies in 1893. House is purchased in 1909 by the Giancana family, who trafficked stolen goods and ran a large gambling operation. They sound like fun. Police find three dead men and one wounded from gunshots, all from a group well, known as the... Oh, sorry. Again. Right. No, no, that's okay. I was just going to say that, you know, this is this was our first introduction to really... I, I, think it, I, I think with the Lollerie House, we talked about the Italians. Oh, yeah. About the big influx of Italians in the city. And this is kind of our first introduction to the mafia in New Orleans, which yeah. is where it started. A lot of people don't realize that the mafia came to the United States through New Orleans, uh, not New York. That's what I would have thought. No, this was... Um, most of the Sicilians that came to the United States during that time period came through New Orleans. So as we'll find out in later episodes, uh, there was a very heavy mafia presence in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And it'll become really important when we get to talking about things like um, some of the, the hangings, the lynchings that took place later with the Italians, some kidnappings, and especially when we talk about the Axeman, uh, because that's those are that you really got to have a an idea about the Italians, but these are the first like mafia Italians that we talked about. And in the early 1900s, pre-prohibition, mm. most of the Italian immigrants at the time were either, you know, were either organized crime or they were, you know, just regular industrious people with grocery stores and businesses. Yeah. Um, but the black hand was yes. a. I didn't. I didn't really explain it because I figured we talked yes, about please. it. Please, but the black hand was an extortion. And I want to say group, but that's not accurate because it was not organized crime. Mm -hmm. It was usually people who it was. Oh, boy, this is hard to explain, but it's usually like organized crime that preyed on organized crime and also on wealthy people. It was mostly wealthy Italians. It was Mm -hmm. Italians. It was Italian on Italian crime. Okay, And they would send extortion letters to prominent Italians, families, sometimes mafia people, sometimes just wealthy business people, and demand money. 
And if they didn't get it, they would kill members of the family. They'd blow up their businesses. Um, just to kind of give you an idea, um, I'll use Chicago as a good reference because this is a good way to kind of explain it. Sure. There was a guy in Chicago whose name was Jim Calissimo, and he was the vice lord of Chicago. He was on the south side, Levy District. Um, he ran all the crime, the prostitution, the gambling, everything. He was the big guy. And he started getting threatened by black hand extortionists mm -hmm. and sending him letters. So he brought his nephew, or actually his wife's nephew, to Chicago to help him out with this. He needed somebody who was ruthless, who could take care of the black hand extortionists. And the, his nephew was a guy named John Torrio, who was a good friend, slightly older, but good friend of this unknown nobody gangster named Al Capone. Uh -huh. And he brought Al with him to Chicago. And eventually Torrio and Capone killed Colissimo and took over the business in 1920 when prohibition was passed. But he brought... Torio to Chicago to get rid of the extortionists because they were, and they were, they preyed on everybody. And it, it went New Orleans, uh, New York, Chicago, wherever these guys were, were and they were very, very, um, you know, busy, I guess, in the early 1900s, pre-prohibition. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was around that same time. And the Giancanas were getting extorted by some black hand guys and then they didn't pay, so they showed up to kill him during a family party and instead found that everyone at the party was armed to the teeth and killed the assassins. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's that's how that got started. And, you know, I we'll go down a rabbit hole here with Mafia in New Orleans, but eventually we'll get there. Um, and eventually you'll find more about, we'll talk more about the Mafia because those are the guys who are believed to be linked most directly to the Kennedy assassination. Oh, okay. Or the guys that came out of New Orleans. Okay. So I thought that was a Russian thing. No, it was no. I it's it's very I don't know, it's just one of the theories. Okay. You know, but you know, I mean that's how that's how they say that's how Kennedy got elected was, you know, mob guys and especially in Chicago voting, you know, running the votes. Mm -hmm. And then he then turned on him with the all the hearings and all that stuff. And so they took him out, but that was all supposedly, again, supposedly planned out in new Orleans. Have you ever seen that movie, JFK, the Oscar, uh, Oliver Stone movie? I have not. It's like nine hours long. Oh, great. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's okay. Mm -hmm. um, good. Ke it's a Kevin Costner thing, but that all takes place in new Orleans. I mean, that's in the courthouse there and stuff. That's where they, these hearings are held with this, this prosecutor garrison was out of new Orleans that Kevin Costner plays. Uh, anyway, We'll we'll talk more okay. about that later because you can't not talk about it when you start talking about the mob. But that's another rabbit hole we don't need to go down too far. It has nothing to do with with our our ghost stories. So, Fair enough. My, you know my. But first... but the point is is that yeah. there was a lot of violence that took place in this house that had nothing to do with General Beauregard, mm -hmm. who really just spent his time there writing books and being a businessman. Got it. But so. it adds to the history of the house yes. and, and everything. Yes. So the Black Hand, it's just a dope name. It like, is. I it like is. it a it's lot. It's a good one. It, it is a good one. I like it a lot. And yeah. my first my first Stephen King book was 112263, right. by the way, right. randomly. Uh, 
Anyway, oh, also, another thing it brought up, I have all these things backlogged here. Um, Do you know that I'm very Italian? You wouldn't be able to tell by looking at me. I didn't get any of that dark skin, nothing. I, I burned. I got a big nose. Yes. As, <laughs> I didn't as, say that. I just it, pointed to not. my nose. <laughs> my, the family name is Manoni, and I got uh, blonde hair and fair skin. Yeah, there's a lot There's a lot of fair skinned Italians. I know. I just wish oh. I could tan. I think that's all oh, it is. Yeah. But anyway, okay. So, yeah, there's more attempts uh, made to wipe out the family. It, I love this. In 1925, the house is converted into a macaroni factory. Yeah, isn't that random? Where does that? Well, I think that this was a time period where, you know, the French Quarter was pretty run down. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was not the fancy part of the city anymore. So you use the stuff for whatever you could. Right. But, I mean, this is technically, this is a, should be a very famous house. Yeah. I mean, it's a, this general was like the native son, you know, and it was built for like the, the world's greatest chess players family, yeah, you know, and yeah, all that yeah. stuff. So, you know, it's like, why, why would this get, well, and then when it was converted to a factory, then people went, oh, okay, what the hell? Oh, right. <laughs> you know, now we care. Oh, we got to do something about this. Yeah. They thing, always so. care when it's kind of too right, late. Right. Right. Uh, but it later becomes a national historic site. So the story start of Civil War ghost sounds coming from the house, uh, but you say no battles took place no, here? But, no, no. But you think maybe maybe the books written by I the memory I mean, I'm trying to think of anything because- I think it's interesting, though. I feel like that, you know, people are, people are hearing, okay, let's just say, let's say that this is not a legend yeah. of New Orleans. Let's say this is a real- active haunting, okay? And people are really hearing the sounds of yelling and guns, gunfire and screams and that kind of thing. Couldn't they just go, oh, well, you know, that's General Beauregard's house. It must have something to do with the Civil War. Yeah. Instead of this place is haunted because a bunch of mob guys lived here and killed people. Yeah. You know, and there were, you know, battles that took place where they actually were shooting, you know, in the courtyard of this house. Right. I mean, I think that that's, it's like the, you know, the, your, your stereotypical woman in white. It's oh, always sure. got to be a woman in white. Doesn't matter what it is, but it looks like a woman in a white dress, so it must be a woman in white. You know, and maybe that has nothing to do with the actual haunting, mm-hmm. but it's the explanation that we create for a real event and then that takes on a life of its own and becomes this bizarre legend that, you know, has no semblance of reality to it. I mean, right. we run into that all the time with tours and different locations. And I, I love to find the story behind the story. Mm-hmm. Those are always my favorite things to do. And um, I think in this case, I would be willing to say that I think that it has more to do with the, the mob, <laughs> the mafia yes. people that live there rather than the general. The actual traumatic um, history. Right, right. But I mean, there are other ghost stories attached to the house. But as far as the Phantom Army goes, mm-hmm. I, I think that probably has more to do with gangsters than the Civil War. Right, but. right. Well, that's what I've been telling people. You know, we, we get away from it every now and then kind of depending on what the story is. But I say at the, when we started this and at the end of the day, a lot of it says the history versus the hauntings, right, you know, exactly. and trying to, trying to reconcile things and say, here are the facts, here are the ghost stories. What do you think? You know? Um, and I think this is a great case of that. Also, can you imagine ghosts firing cannons? Like just like <laughs> well, the, the scariest I mean, I way to wake just, up. Yeah, I think it's supposed to just be the, you know, the, but again, there's no, there's no, there's no impression. There. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it can't even be like, I mean, I could see it Gettysburg. Sure. Yeah. You know, they talk Perfectly about hearing, sense. you know, cannon fire. That's a, you know, an impression left behind on the atmosphere, but what's the impression here? Uh-huh. You know? And so, you know, I threw that in there about, you know, General Beauregard writing these books and maybe his memory stirred something up and, you know, we're getting really psychological there, but I don't, I don't know. But it, like I said, if it's, if it's a real, 
haunting as far as the violence goes. Mm-hmm. I think it had, would have to do with the mafia people. Now, as far as the other ghost stories go, when, yeah. while it really sounds like, I mean, the one of the general and his wife dancing, I mean, that, come that's on. a movie. <laughs> I mean, that's, yes. you know, that, that doesn't, that doesn't strike me as being one that I would really put a lot of stock in, but it's unfinished business. But it's a cool Troy. story. But again, though, then you've got the girl who lives in the apartment below it and keeps hearing noises. Yep. Again, you've got the same deal mm-hmm. is she's hearing noises. And so, there's a, you know, oh, someone else has heard these noises too. So when they heard the noises, they thought, wow, I wonder what that could be. You know what? I wonder if it's the, maybe it's the general and his wife. You know, and yeah. it just becomes a story. Romanticized. It's not to say that, that the haunting doesn't occur, that people haven't actually heard, you know, someone upstairs or walking around mm-hmm. or music or whatever. But I, I don't think that's probably this. It just seems too good to be true. Sure. That's all I'm saying. I guess. Yeah. So. It seems like a Hollywood kind of moment yeah, to me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So one thing I was happy to see, I don't know. Happy is the right word, but there's a ghost cat named Caroline and a ghost dog. And that just makes me happy. Yeah. Well, and you know, that was the, that's the other thing about the, the, the other really famous person that lived in this house. The reason it's the, you know, um, the, the, the Beauregard Keys house yeah. is because Francis Parkinson Keys lives there, lived there at one time and died there at the house. Uh, but she was, um, you know, a really popular author in like the middle part of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And I, I've never... I've never read. Would I be familiar with her no, work? No, <laughs> I no. You're not going to recognize them, and and honestly, I wouldn't really know them much either. They they were always like book of the month club, 1950s kind of um, historical romance type books. Yeah. They, but a lot of her stuff was about like New Orleans and the New Orleans area um, in the late 40s and stuff. In the early 50s, she did like. Dinner at Antoine, Steamboat Gothic, River Road, Crescent Carnival, all these New Orleans kind of books. And then she lived there in the house until 1970, and that's when she died. And um, so it's supposed to be her dog, Lucky, that haunts the house. And, (laughs) you know, and I I like that story about the blind lady, you know, and stuff. But, um, yeah, it's... um, I don't know. It's it's just kind of one of those. There, a lot of her stuff is there in the in the house too. And I'm not saying that she haunts the place or anything like that either. But supposedly, you know, her dog does. Um, but like I said, I did like that story about the blind lady with the dog. And oh no, no, that he, he only acts like that when right. there's another dog in the room. And you know, so but and but that's kind of funny too. That that whole thing about the ghost dog and the ghost cat and all that stuff too. Yeah. Is, the people that work there will tell you, oh, no, 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 no. There's no good stories here. None of the, this place isn't haunted. But, you know, there have been a few weird things. Yeah, they're like, okay, well, what? <laughs> what? I don't believe in ghosts. Yeah, but, but yeah, yeah, it's just kind of one of those things. But anyway, that's the uh, the other connection to the house. But, I mean, Francis Parkinson Keys is 90% of the people, probably more than that, that you talk to are not going to have any idea who that was. I, you know, I so, didn't. Yeah. Something I don't know if I told you. When I was younger, I had to go to therapy for a bunch of reasons. It's a whole other thing. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that we talked about was I kept seeing, like, people see things out of the corner of their eyes all the time, you know, and that sort of sure. thing. And that would happen to me, but I would always swear it was a cat. Oh, yeah. And I would always think I'd see cats just running around that were not there. <laughs> and eventually that ended up stopping. And I'm a dog person. I mean, I'm a one cat person, my, right, my cat, sure. but I love dogs way more. But I was just seeing cats. That's weird. It is weird. That's weird. No you know, one's there's a place in it. there's a place in Jacksonville that um, 
Lisa and I, we is one of the places we used to do on the tour when we did the Jacksonville tour, mm-hmm. and, and we'd done investigations and stuff. We'd done a lot of things there. We still do ghost hunts there, but um, it used to be a funeral home. And before that, it was a doctor's office, and then it was an animal hospital for a while. But there is a ghost cat that haunts that house. Wow. And all kinds of people have encountered this cat. There's a chair on the second floor that has always been the legend is if you sit in this chair long enough, eventually you'll feel the cat jump up on your oh, lap. Oh, wow. Now, I've never had that happen. But one night we, we took a tour group in there and we were wrapping it up and we were trying to get everybody out of the house. And um, Lisa went to look for this woman who was had wandered off the tour. And at the time, the theater guild was using the house and they had just jammed that place full of like props and costumes and stuff. And so she finally found this woman on the second floor and she was laying on the floor in one of the rooms that was filled with costumes. Mm-hmm. And Lisa said, hey, we, we got to go. Like, you know, what the hell are you doing? And the woman was taking pictures under the rack. And um, we didn't know why until we got outside. And she said she'd followed a cat in there and just was wanted to play with the cat and wow. took a picture. And there's a, a picture she took of this underneath the rack. You can see the two eyes glowing. There's no, There was no cat in that building. Wow. No cat. Not a real cat. Yeah. Anyway, so... Um, you know, people ask all the time, well, do animals, you know, come? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I, I think that maybe we keep them around the same way we do people sometimes, you know, when people, uh, somebody passes away and then they continue to be around for a while and then it sort of goes away. It's almost like we keep them there until we need them mm-hmm. as long as we need them sure. and then they move on. And maybe animals are the same way. I mean, you know, everybody go, oh, well, no, there's no way animals don't have souls. They can't come back as a ghost. I don't know. I, every animal I've ever had in my life certainly has a very distinct personality. Yeah. And so what is a consciousness? It's a personality. So I think it's it's accurate to say that animals can be ghosts too. I'd like um, to think so. Yeah, I think so too. But uh, but yeah, I, I, that's, I think, one of the cool things about this particular story. So mm-hmm. really the best stories about this house are really not the Civil War story. Right. It's just what the house is famous for. Sure. You know, that's the haunting that this house is famous for, but, you know, has nothing really to do with the, the most, you know, present ghost stories in the house. Yeah. So. Man, I think the only thing scarier than a regular cat is one that you can't punt if it like starts to attack you, <laughs> Great. you know? Great. Oh, man. <laughs> All right, it's now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com. Our first writer is from one of our uh, patrons, and she, his name's Joe. And Joe asked if we're ever going to do anything different from the uh, T-shirt subscriptions that he gets, because he said, man, I've got almost all the T-shirts. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. And I was like, oh, man, <laughs> Joe, you're right. So we yeah. are going to do some things. I'm, I'm going to make more shirts. I'm going to make different yeah. designs. Yeah, I knew um, we were going to work on that. And we also now, we have pop sockets for phones available. Right. Um, by the time you hear this, I will have figured out how to get them online and, and yeah. sell them yeah, to yeah, you we'll and stuff. But there. those will be available, too. So, Joe, we're going to take care of you one way or another, but I just wanted to... To let you know. Yeah, we're also working on some other stuff too um, that I don't even think I've told you about. No, probably not. So I don't know. What um, goes it was on through. Here. It's through John, a friend of John Winterbauer's, working on some like coffee tumblers. Oh. And then by the time you hear this, we may have them. But nice. Um, yeah. So awesome, cool. Joe. You'll be taken care of. Uh, this next one's from Carla. She said, "I was just listening to the podcast about uh, Madame Lalaurie, and you mentioned that you couldn't connect Nick Cage to New Orleans." She said he directed an independent film called Sunny 
that nobody ever saw. She said, well, nobody that I ever met anyway. No, I've never even heard of it. It stars James Franco, Harry Dean Stanton, and Mina Servari. And it was set in New Orleans, uh, New Orleans brothel. Nick Cage makes a cameo as a character called Acid Yellow. And if you blink, you'll miss him. In any case, this is where I believe Nick Cage fell in love with well, the Well, he city. also was in, wasn't he in uh, the sequel to Bad Lieutenant, too? Oh, Isn't probably. he in Bad Lieutenant 2 Port of Call or something like oh, that? I'm maybe. pretty sure he is. And I think that's in New Orleans, too. Okay. Uh, but I, I but I don't, I mean, I guess that he could just as easily have come down there, was in a movie, really loved right. the place, and decided to buy up a bunch of property at a time when he was really hot, right. which is probably what happened. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I kept trying to find some, like, family connection or yeah. something, and I didn't, I couldn't find one. But, Who knows? So she's probably right. That's probably when it started. Right. She said, it's worth a watch. Love your show. So thank you for, for writing in. And then um, someone sent us a very heartfelt email. I believe it's Carrie. Uh, so I just wanted to say, you know, thank you for sending the email and you're in our thoughts. And now we have a couple of Patreon shout outs. So I wanted to say thank you to Michael and Christy for uh, supporting the show and subscribing to our Patreon feed. Really helps us uh, keep doing what we're doing yep. and get better at what we're doing. Well, I don't know if it'll help us personally get better, but at least we'll have better equipment. Yeah, no, we're, do it with. We, we're, not we're going get downhill, better. but it'll sound better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess uh, I guess we should probably wrap this up. And uh, I want to thank everybody for listening to subscribing to the show and uh, ask you again, share it with your friends. If you've got friends who uh, like this kind of stuff and haven't listened, pass it on. Leave us a review on iTunes if you haven't done that. Um, you know, it takes like two minutes uh, to just do it. If nothing else, you could just make the stars, but we like to read the funny comments. Yeah. Um, so if you do it, we'd really appreciate it. And uh, anyway, we'll uh, we'll see you next time. All right. This episode of the American no, Hogs podcast done. was written I by Troy Taylor. We it was done. produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. I know you took it out of the outline, but I added it back <sighs> in. Yeah, I see In that. each bi-weekly episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. You can find the show on iTunes tunes spotify stitcher or wherever you find your favorite shows and at americanhauntingspodcast.com um pandora that is was it the, really on pandora yeah we had this oh, that's conversation right. on that's the right. show we did have this conversation uh, okay yeah. anyway all right go ahead go to the website we also have but show notes something else link uh linkedin no, <laughs> no. Not, not linkedin um no there was someplace else i mean it's everywhere like castro cast uh, Fox. Well, okay well so mostly stuff i've never heard of yeah so, okay well these are the ones i've heard this is why so. you got me i got, I got this yeah, i got this I, on I don't know anything about that stuff website show notes I more info the because Apple. american hauntings isn't just a podcast it's books tours events and more all of which you can find at our main website at americanhauntings.net and if you want even more from us you can become a supporter of the podcast on patreon you can get bonus episodes of the show t-shirts discounts great stuff in the mail weird tumblers yeah, apparently. somebody the stuff they got in the mail they put on instagram oh did this they this morning yeah oh that's nice yeah, that was nice well, that was just the little welcome packet thing too it's well, yeah. well thanks I thanks got to new, our supporters just got new stickers but i accidentally got the wrong size what size are they? Well, <laughs> oh, are they they're giant? Not, Tell no, me they're, they're giant. They're, they're not. They're, they're really kind of awesome, but they're, they're smaller than normal. Um. So we've got new podcast stickers that are about the size <laughs> of a quarter, but they're yeah. kind of cool. Yeah. Actually, Lisa really liked them, and, and I liked them too. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, th well, thanks to our supporters, we have upgraded our equipment, downsized we our have. stickers, and we <laughs> continue to help from you. We can dedicate more time and resources to creating even more shows in the future. Take a minute, check it out. We think you'll like what you find at patreon.com slash Hauntings. Be sure to get in 
in touch if you have any comments about the show, suggestions, reviews, jokes, or just want to tell us what you really think of us. We're reachable <laughs> via email on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Carrier Pigeon, Telegram, Telegraph. Skywriting. Yeah, don't, yeah, Skywriting. So we, I keep meaning to put those two in there, and yes. I keep forgetting to keep thinking we're going to take this out. Yeah, messages do, in so. a bottle and messages <laughs> left in the blood of your enemies. Do not hurt anyone, please. Until next time, goodbye, so long. See you later. See ya. <laughs> it was good that we went back and redid that. I think so, and too. I think it'll actually be a-